0: Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by interim pastor Derek Geki He is preaching from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Today, we are finishing up our series called the Disciples Toolbox, which is Series we did about uh, the spiritual disciplines that we believe all Christians should actively know and practice. We've looked at uh, already how to rest, how to read scripture, how to pray, how to grow together, how to serve, and how to give. And today we're ending with how do we take that and give it to someone else? How do we disciple? How to disciple. And specifically, we're looking at the Great Commission because. That's the best directive there is. It's Jesus's final major directive to those who want to follow him. And I do want to give a shout out before I start to Brian Dye. He is the Director of Leader Development at the Chicago Partnership, and he gave me permission uh, to share a great deal of knowledge and insight that he had shared with me uh, in this sermon today. So Brian, if you're watching, again, I'm heavily indebted to you for what I get to share today. Now, in this short passage, which I'm sure many of us have heard if we've been in church circles for a while, we see um, some things that I think we've, you know, it's become so ingrained in us that we could almost rattle it off like the Lord's Prayer. But there's a lot of profound things to catch. And so I want to take our time as we go through it and consider three major things. One, who is this for? Who is this for? Who are we supposed to be discipling, and who should be doing the discipling? Two, why can we do it? Like, why are we able to do it? And finally, how do we do it? How do we disciple? So who is this for? Why can we do it, and how do we do it? Will you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, uh, we thank you so much for the constant wisdom and love you have poured into our lives through scripture, through each other. I pray, God, that you would help us hear your words today. Um, Whatever notions we might have about discipleship, correct or incorrect, I just pray you would align our hearts with what you have taught. Let these words today be yours, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I'm going to start with, who is this for? Now, again, this passage, extremely famous, but I do want to start by calling some attention to some context that uh, if you're like me, it, you'd probably miss read right past. You wanna get to the, the go therefore and make disciples. That's the, the part we focus on. First, I wanna call out the 11 disciples. There are 11, because Judas betrayed Jesus and then um, hung himself. They're meeting Jesus in Galilee. Uh, the region of Galilee, specifically at the mountain to which Jesus directed them. That's how it's phrased. Earlier in the chapter, we didn't read this section, but it gives the account of the resurrection and how Jesus ran into uh, a group of women who were actually the first witnesses to his post-resurrection body. And he told them to let the disciples know to go to Galilee. Now, just to give you some context, because I think a lot of us, we hear these places in the Bible, the the, you know, Nazareth, Capernaum, Galilee, Jerusalem, and we point at a map and say, "Eh, it's around there, you know. Um, But Galilee, the region of Galilee, uh, is north on the northern section of the map, and the resurrection took place where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem, which is on the southern side of the map. Galilee is the region where most of the disciples actually came from. It was typically gathered around the Sea of Galilee, if you've heard of that. Uh, To give you an idea of how far apart these regions on the map are, Nazareth is about 70 miles straight north from Jerusalem. That's if you just go as the crow flies, if you just walk straight from one to the other. Now, That translates, again, no cars, very few horses, to about four to five days of walking. So if Jesus is sending his disciples to Galilee, he's telling them, I want you to walk for about a week, and I'll see you when you get there. But that's a straight shot journey through Samaria, which... There's a whole can of worms I could open up there about the the racial tensions between Israel and Samaria, uh, but suffice to say, most Jewish people would not go the straight way. They would go around. Uh, there were two different paths on either side, and that would take anywhere from five to six days. So you're looking at a full week of travel. Why would Jesus call his disciples to Galilee? He was just resurrected in Jerusalem, and I know some of us If you're like me, traditionally we hear the Great Commission and we imagine this is exactly what Jesus said and then the next thing is the Ascension. It's not actually the case. The Ascension takes place in Bethany, which is a suburb of Jerusalem, which means Jesus called them all the way up to Galilee to give them this, and then at some point called them all the way back down to witness the Ascension. I know this because of Luke's account is the one that touches on the ascension. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 51. And he led them out as far as Bethany, again, suburb of Jerusalem, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Luke continues his account in his second book of Acts, chapter 1. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Why am I telling you all this? Okay. Put on your history nerd glasses for a moment, okay? Uh, The idea that King Solomon, after he died, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. Uh, there was the North Kingdom, which is identified as Israel, and the South Kingdom, which is recognized as Judah. Judah basically stuck with the line of David. All the kings were heirs of the Davidic line. The Northern Kingdom went with other guys, usurpers. Some people would call them traitors. Uh, and eventually, neither kingdom ended up well. They, all, they both got subjugated. They got overthrown by foreign powers. But throughout the the Old Testament, if you read through the accounts of kings. The kingdom of Judah has a number of kings whom the Bible says did right in the eyes of God. Some did evil, but some did right. About roughly half. The kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, all of them were called, were said to have done evil in the eyes of God. Every single one. So by the time of Jesus, what remained of Judah was seen by the people of the time as the good kingdom. And the northern region, which is where Galilee was, was seen as the bad kingdom. Galilee was seen as a land of brokenness and failure, what us modern-day folks might consider the bad part of town, or whatever state makes you go like this. I know Florida is a popular one. All 11 disciples who are here for this account were from Galilee. Do you want to guess which disciple the only one that came from Judah was? Judas. Judas was the only one who came from the good kingdom. So why did Jesus make a point to call them back home? Again, a, a full week's journey up just to bring them back why did the angels in Acts make a point to call them men of Galilee? I could conjecture about p- practical reasons, like just thinking about it as like, maybe Jesus wanted to get them out of town while the heat died down over the resurrection. You know, you know the, the, the Pharisees at this point were claiming that they had stolen the body. So maybe it's just like, ah, oh, let's get out, let the heat die down. But I think from a practical re- for me. True reason from a biblical standpoint, I think what was happening was Jesus was trying to actively remind his disciples and everyone who would read this account later. The book of Matthew was primarily aimed at a Jewish readership, so people for whom these realities of geography were very important. I think he was trying to remind everyone that the people he discipled and he built up to lead his church were the opposite of what everyone would have expected. They were from the bad kingdom. They were from Florida. (laughs) Even today, I think this speaks to a fundamental struggle we all have when it comes to not just discipling or sharing our faith, but even just engaging with people. This speaks to the concept of, tribalism. The good kingdom people are the ones we naturally like, the ones we agree with, the ones we get along with, the ones we potentially look up to and admire. Bad kingdom people, they're the ones we don't naturally like, the ones we disagree with, the ones we maybe look down on. The bad kingdom people are the ones who we think they could never be a Christian. Why, why would I bother sharing my faith with them. I'll just get argued out, chewed out, pushed out. Or possibly worse, they're the people we look at and think they could never be a real Christian. Not like me. I've got it all together. I know the stances to take. Good and bad could mean any number of things. It could be geography. It could be just your association with where people come from, but it could be stances, religious versus secular, moral versus loosey-goosey, nerds versus jocks, polite versus rude, conservative versus liberal, or whatever denomination you like versus whatever denomination you don't like. In the eyes of God, there is no good or bad kingdom it's just his kingdom and everyone that's not in it whenever we start separating people including ourselves into categories of who is more fit for discipleship or worth our time uh, we forget the reality that everyone is in the same boat without Christ yeah it might be easier to get along with certain folks because of their political stances or their personal preferences or what TV shows they watch But what does that matter in the span of eternity? The only category we should care about is saved or unsaved. Do they know Jesus or not? That's it. And the act of making disciples is leading people, including ourselves, away from these ideas of good kingdom, bad kingdom, spiritually fit, spiritually unfit, and bringing them towards the only kingdom that matters. And ultimately, it's king who makes all things new. So this call to discipleship, it's not just for the people we like. It's not just for the people we get along with. We have to look at the folks on the other side of the fence. The discipleship's for them, too. On the flip side... We, as believers, are all called to disciple, regardless of ability or training or pedigree or whatever. I know some of you might be like, whoa, wait, what? I'm not equipped for this. Well, hold hold on. Give yourself some credit. I know this because of a very strange call-out that Scripture makes. Matthew 28, verse 17. The disciples come to the mountain. They see Jesus, and it says, "And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted." I don't know if any of you have ever caught that or wondered what that means. Like, um, I, there's been times when I've looked at it, like they doubted this was Jesus. They doubted he was alive again. That's he's right there. I don't, I don't know what you do with that. Isn't it weird to call out that some of the disciples doubted? And again, it it says the 11. We're not saying that there's like 500 people at this point. And these guys just made a five-day journey to see their newly resurrected Savior in the flesh. So to some degree, they believed they were going to see him. Otherwise, I don't know why they would travel that far. How could they be doubting anything? I want to give thanks to uh, fellow elder Michael Morgan for calling this out for me. Uh, The word used here for doubt is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's when Peter attempts to walk on water and he starts to sink. And when Jesus pulls him out of the water, he says, why did you doubt? It's the same word being used. So in both of these instances, I think we can, we can start to see what is actually being said here. Of course, Peter knew mentally, knowledge-wise, that Jesus could save him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have walked on the water. <laughs> if he was doubting Jesus' ability, he wouldn't have tried. Just like the disciples here, I believe, they, they knew Jesus was resurrected. They were seeing him. They clearly Believed and knew who he was, the Son of God. I don't think that's what they were doubting. I think what this is referring to is what was in their hearts. Headwise, yes, I get it, I got it. Jesus is Lord. But I think they were doubting the future. What, what does this mean for us? What is, the, what is Jesus going to ask of me? What if I do it wrong? What if I screw up? What if I don't do it well enough? And yet Jesus calls them all the same, because we see this verse saying that they doubted, and he gives them the commission anyway, knowing full well that, yeah, they might be scared, they might screw up, but he calls them anyway. So how, how does this work? How can this be? How can we be... Confident that our discipling efforts will be of any worth at all if we aren't as trained and disciplined as Tim Keller or Francis Chan or whichever champion of the faith you want to look to. And that brings us to why we can do it. First off, I want to call out, Jesus starts the Great Commission with a very important clause. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, And then he follows it up with, go, therefore, and make disciples. And we'll get to the rest of the commission in a bit, but what about that phrase? We are to make disciples because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is basically saying, I'm the boss, what I say goes, and it's because of that that I'm charging you with making disciples. What does this mean for us? Is Jesus just trying to... Scare us into a corner, throw his weight around, so we'll actively obey and listen because he's the boss. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, I dabbled in writing for a number of years, and not like articles or journals, but like full-on fantasy sci-fi novels, comedy podcasts, what have you. Uh, I was hoping to break it into the biz. Maybe I'll try again someday. I don't know. But when you sit down to write a good story, there's a couple different ways you can come come at it from. Now, Stephen King, very popular writer, his method is he literally just gets an idea, he sits down, and he just goes. And he has has no idea where he's going to go. He doesn't know where it ends. If you've ever read a Stephen King novel, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. (laughs) You had no idea what you were doing. (laughs) But it it comes to some sort of fruition that's like, oh, it's interesting. Me, I had to go with an outline approach. I'd, like, plan out the story, figure out beginning, middle, and end, build the world, figure out the characters. But I especially had to get the ending. I needed to know where I was going. And as I wrote, things would change. I'd shuffle events around, or rewrite sections, or cut stuff, add stuff, whatever. But an interesting thing happens when you really get into the groove of writing is your characters do have a mind of their own. Like, the personalities, yeah, you maybe maybe formed them, but once they start talking, it's a very weird experience to have voices going back and forth in your head, and you're like, yeah, that's what would naturally be said. You kind of let them navigate themselves a bit as the story goes on. But as the author, I always had the ending in mind. And in that regard, no matter what the characters did, I knew where they were headed, I knew where I was guiding them, and ultimately... I knew what was going to happen, and I was going to make it happen. The ending did not rely on them. It relied on me. What I believe Jesus is saying here is, I am the author of all existence. Through my life, death, and resurrection, I have secured an ending for those who love and obey me that will blow you away. It'll make everything worth it, everything that you're struggling with now, everything you're afraid of right now. The endings, it's going to be worth it, guys. Therefore, go and make disciples. Paul touches on this idea in Romans chapter 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's the one writing your destiny. We are all characters. In God's story. And while it's our responsibility to obey what He says, to adhere to what He's given us to do, the results are in His hands. You think Peter's sermon in Act Two, the one that kicks off in Pentecost, was successful because he was a great speaker? Because he'd had eight years of seminary? He didn't. Um, As written, it's maybe five minutes long, and in the middle, he tells the crowd, hey, that Messiah you were waiting for, yeah, you killed him. And yet 3,000 people respond, I want more of this. You can't tell me that was Peter's skill. You can't tell me that was Peter's experience. There was something else going on there. And what I believe Jesus is saying is, don't be afraid. I've got this. I am going to be the ultimate discipler, and the stuff that you do, please do it to obey. I want to work through you, but you are not the determinant of someone's salvation. But that isn't enough. Just knowing that Jesus is in charge, it's not quite enough. Any king can make a declaration that benefits you, but what comfort is that when you're struggling? with your self-worth if you're heartbroken, if you're not sure if anyone loves you. If the president somehow gave an executive order that cleared all of our debts today, student loans, mortgage, whatever, that might give you some hope, right? That might give you some sense of like, okay, I got this, I got this. But there's that inner struggle. There's that inner questioning of ourselves. So Jesus gives us another promise at the end of the commission, Matthew 28:20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises the ending secure, but also we are never alone. Never. He's with us always. Think about um, marriage vows, which is appropriate, given how Jesus and the church are compared to a husband and wife throughout the New Testament. What are the vows? Something to the effect of, I take you to be my wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. We are going to go through ups and downs. We are going to have good times and bad, sickness and health, better and worse. But Jesus has vowed to be by our side through it all. And at the end, his vows are a little different because death won't part us. He's conquered death. That's not in the game plan. So when it comes to discipling, sharing your faith, when that fear rises, when that uncertainty of, do I know enough? Can I answer the questions? Am I going to be ready? Remember that. Jesus is with you. Every time you share the gospel, Jesus is with you with every meeting you have with someone you're discipling. Jesus is with you every time you so much as mention his name. And the results are something he's writing, not you. I hope that can alleviate your fear of all the what-ifs or the, but what about this that I don't know that well. But it will only alleviate your fear if you can really truly believe it. And that takes time. That takes struggle. That takes faith. But, now that we have seen who we should disciple, who is called to disciple, and why we are empowered to do it, how do we do it? What does it look like on paper? What's, what's the practical application of this? Alright, this is what everyone's waiting for. This is the meat of the commission. I'm going to focus on four major directive words that Jesus gives us. Go, make, baptize, and teach. The first thing Jesus says is, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Again, all nations, that idea that we should have no prejudice about who we share the gospel with, who to disciple, who to do life with. The emphasis is placed on us to go find others. Not wait for them to come to us. I know that's, uh, for some of us, that's a little, oh, wait, 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 wait. I, <laughs> hold on. Let's, let's slow down. But look at what Jesus did. How did he live his life? Jesus was constantly on the move, and he was actively seeking people to teach and disciple. He called the 12 to him, not the other way around, Every time you see Jesus interacting with people, when people are coming to him, it's usually like, "Please give me healing. Please help me with this problem." But when it comes to teaching, Jesus is the one calling out to them. Now, some of us have heard these, this phrase, and I, I know for some people, this, when you hear "go," you're tempted to think that means somewhere else, the, a new city, a new state, a new country. And missions are very important. We have a missions, we have a couple missions teams coming up this summer, and it's needed. But Jesus never went beyond the region of Israel, focused mostly in Galilee and Jerusalem and the areas in between. Again, it's about maybe 90-mile radius. Or, uh, yeah. You don't have to go far to find people who need Jesus. What this is saying is you do have to look for them. Look to your left. Look to your right. Now slide, slide, (laughs) up. Each of those people need Jesus. And you were on the left or right of someone else, so you need Jesus too. This whole idea of going to find people. Yeah, active. It's an active verb. It's saying we need to look for folks who need discipling. We need to look for people to share our lives with, with our hearts with, the gospel with. But sometimes that is people sitting next to you in a church. Next major word, make. Make disciples. Notice that Jesus isn't saying find or recruit or gather, but make disciples. This means to raise up, to create, to form. Now before you start thinking, I'm leaning into indoctrination, just hold on. Some churches get excited when their numbers increase. Oh, we've suddenly got like 100 more people attending church. But are we making disciples and thus our numbers are growing or are we gathering them from somewhere else? Gathering is easy, especially in America. There's a church on every other block. You know, Folks can leave one church and just shuffle into another one and the, new, the church that just got them, like, ah, our numbers are growing. Successful ministry, we did it. You can lose people You just go find some more. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples, raise them up. And that takes time and investment and blood and sweat and tears. It's looking at someone that is not saved, or maybe they're just weak in the faith, and working with them, helping them grow, pouring into them. Look at, who in Jesus, look at who Jesus focused on. Yes, he preached to giant crowds, and he ministered to a lot of people. But he focused his time primarily with three guys, Peter, James, and John. And beyond that, he spent some time with the 12. But that was where he focused his time, 12 guys. The Son of God spends most of his time pouring into three guys and then 12 by extension? For three years he did that. If that was how Jesus treated discipling, he wasn't looking to build a megachurch. He just wanted to focus on who was in his life. If that's how Jesus went about making disciples, we can't be satisfied with seeing folks once once a week on a Sunday saying hi to them at church and think that we're pouring into them. That brings us to our next verb, baptize. And now I'm assuming some of you will be like, well, this is easy. I know how to to dunk people. Hold on. The Greek word used in this passage is baptizo, which means to immerse. Now, I know for many folks this means that water baptism should be full immersion only, and I'm not getting into that today. What I will say is that Jesus does not mention water. Many of us assume that's what he means, because when we hear the word baptize, we think water. But he doesn't say that. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I know a lot of us take that to think, oh, that's a formality. When you dunk someone, you have to say, I do this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Biblically speaking, the name of God is tied to his identity, his essence, the core of who he is, so much so that when he does share anything even close to it, he kind of holds back. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked God to share his name, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you baptism with water is great and symbolic of what it means to die to self and be raised in Christ and it's something we do as a practice but it's not the water that changes you being immersed in water does not a disciple make it makes a wet person (laughs) but if we immerse ourselves and others in the name of God his character his identity his essence who God is that will transform people consider a pickle. How do you make a pickle? You start with a cucumber, and you put it in brine. But just dipping it once doesn't do anything. And dipping it once a week on a Sunday doesn't do much. You need to immerse it. You need to soak it in the brine for days on end. And it's only after that time, that concentrated juice gets in, that the cucumber becomes something else. And only if you try to call a pickle a cucumber, people would look at you funny. So discipling takes time and immersion in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It takes We have to do it through prayer, through scripture, through worship, all the disciplines that we've been talking about. But that immersion is what we need for ourselves and for the people we're discipling. And the best way is the Jesus way. Living together, walking with the people you're discipling, spending time together, praying together, talking about God together, calling each other up late at night when you're having a problem. Immerse yourselves in each other's lives and let God work through you both. Let those you are discipling see you live your faith, be with you as you live your faith. I'm going to end with the final verb, teach. This is the step most of us, I believe, hone in on when we think about discipleship. Uh, we we consider, we think of discipleship programs as like, okay, we're going to meet like once a week. You're going to sit me down. You're going to take me through Scripture, kind of like a mini seminary. And as we once I've learned some gospel, I'm discipled. The focus, though, in that model, is head knowledge not heart knowledge, not change. And notice the focus that Jesus puts on this step. Matthew 28, 20a, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Of course, theological knowledge is great and helpful, but Jesus wants us to focus on teaching people to obey him. Not necessarily know the history of Israel inside and out, Which kingdom was good or bad, for example? That's probably not very useful to know. The danger of focusing on teaching is that we prioritize learning the Christian faith rather than living the Christian faith. And all of us are at different levels of knowledge, and we always will be. As for the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were the ones who spent the most time with Jesus, but all 11... We're charged with making disciples. Jesus isn't calling you to be the most educated or the the, the most capable or even the most successful. All he's saying is just take what you've received, live it out, and pass it on. What have you received? Just bare bones gospel? You know Jesus is the son of God, died and rose again live it out and pass it on. Did you memorize the Ten Commandments? You know, all ten by heart? Great. Live it out, pass it on. Did this sermon series help you? I hope it did. If it did, great. Live it out, pass it on. There's a phenomenal account in John chapter 1. Philip um, goes to his friend Nathaniel. All he knows is where Jesus is. And he says, hey, come see this guy. That's all he had. But he lived it out, and he passed it on. And Nathaniel got to meet Jesus. So however much or little you think you have to share in a discipling context, just use what you have. Give Jesus the five loaves and two fish that you have, and see what he does with it. And yes, let's keep learning, let's keep growing, let's keep getting closer to Jesus, but never stop living out what you have and passing it on. And rest and trust that through it all, Jesus has all the authority and he is with you always to the end of the age. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotv.life.